Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our focus for today will be on the fixed income space, namely a performance update and outlook for preferreds. We'll also, of course, spend some time on implementation and positioning considerations. Uh, joining us from the UBS Chief Investment Office, glad to welcome back Senior Fixed Income Strategist for the Americas, Frank Saleo. Frank is joined by Doug Baker of Nuveen Asset Management. Doug is a portfolio manager for Nuveen's Global Fixed Income Team and heads the Preferred Securities Sector Team. Doug also manages the firm's Preferred Securities Strategies as well as co-manages the firm's multi-sector strategies. So with that, Frank, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Doug. A welcome to you both. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Uh, and Doug, uh, thanks for being here today. It's, it's always great to speak with you about the preferred sector. I know it's an area that uh, you've been covering and managing for many years now. And I always appreciate our conversations. It's been a great partnership over the years. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Great. Thanks for the invitation, Frank. Yeah, so before we get started, I just do want to quickly recap our view on the preferred sector here at the UBS Chief Investment Office and then turn it over to you for some of your thoughts. And then we can jump into a, a bit of a discussion. But, you know, here at CIO, we came into the year feeling more optimistic uh, about preferred, especially given the challenging year preferred had in 2022. Uh, last year was the second worst year for preferreds in over three decades. And so our optimism here was driven by the view that the primary headwinds of 2022, namely the higher interest rates, you know, the epic surge in Treasury rates last year, as well as the aggressive Fed rate hikes, uh, would soon be dissipating. So that was the primary reason behind our optimism, but also valuations had improved uh, pretty substantially after last year's losses. So that those two reasons were really behind our optimism coming into 2023. But then, of course, during the first half, uh, preferreds got hit with even more headwinds between the Fed rate expectations going even higher, especially in late January and February, and then uh, the regional banking volatility in March and again in early May. And of course, that had an outsized impact on preferreds given the concentration of issuers from the banking sector in the preferred space. So when looking back at the returns in the first half, we see kind of this sawtooth pattern that we've seen in preferreds from time to time, alternating months of, of gains and losses although the sector has managed to string together two consecutive months of gains now with positive returns in June and July. But still, that performance choppiness throughout the first half has still led to some, some pretty decent valuation in recent months. Uh, we haven't fully rebounded uh, from, from the uh, pullback in, in uh, March. Uh, plus, we've gotten more encouraging signals from the Fed on some better inflation trends. So, uh, here at CIO, we did upgrade the preferred sector to a most preferred view in June. Basically, in addition to attractive yields of about 6.5% or so, there there is price appreciation potential in the space that would make total return or yields to call even more more attractive. Uh, that's because most preferreds trade at a discount to, to par today. So it's valuation coupled with our view that, that we've likely seen the peak in interest rates here uh, for the cycle, even though rates, of course, have been trending higher in, in recent weeks and days. 
Uh, we've got the 10-year Treasury uh, above 410 today. But still, um, if we look back to the past several months, we've been range-bound since October in Treasury rates, and we, we actually expect rates to start to trend lower from here. We do think the Fed is now done with rate hikes and will begin to move towards a, a more neutral bias, and that is a better backdrop for preferred. And when coupled with the valuations, leads us to our, our positive outlook. So, Doug, with all of that said, with that set up, what is your perspective on the space, and how does it compare and contrast with some of our views here? I mean, Frank, it's it's almost like you're reading from our script. I mean, we share a lot of the same opinions, and, and I think one of the things that, that we would take it a step further, too, is is now that we've received the results of, of the Fed's annual stress test and, importantly, gone through second quarter earnings, some of those headline risks that we were really concerned about that really shook the market in the first quarter a lot of those have abated. Um, you know, and I think the important the important takeaways from second quarter earnings so that we can talk about the credit story underlying preferreds and really the, the bank story is that, look, on average, banks, um, they they outperformed during the first, I'm sorry, during the second quarter, and admittedly so, did guide generally lower as far as expectations were concerned for coming quarters. A lot of that was due to continued compression of net interest margins. But you know what? That's expected. That's what's supposed to happen at this point in the rate cycle. The deposit betas are going up, and that's just natural. And that's what we want to see is we want to see more of kind of a, a natural progression of what was going on in the bank space given kind of the broader macro backdrop. Importantly, too, we saw deposit outflows moderate and more to levels where we saw kind of the natural attrition to competing saving vehicles and also attrition from consumers needing to supplement their income given inflation. And so um, we actually admittedly had some regional banks that, that did actually grow deposits quarter over quarter. So there wasn't even just um, you know a, a moderating. We actually saw signs of improvement for some of the banks that really I think we were focused on the most to see really how their depositor behavior um, was shaping up post the stress that we saw closer to, you know, the first quarter, early part of, of the second quarter. So combine that with the results of the Fed stress test, we have this feeling that we're returning, you know, more more to normalcy, um, which is what we wanted to see. And and other things, you know, we've had more time to process and, and perform some objective analysis. One of those would be, say, commercial real estate. Remember, when those headlines first came out, it was just another wave of panic for the bank space. And the reason why those headlines have abated as well is because the market has had time to perform the objective analysis. What type of risk is the bank sector exposed to when it comes to commercial real estate? And when you run the numbers, when you stress the commercial real estate exposure, what you find is, is it a risk? Indeed, it is but it's more of an earnings risk for the bank space. It's not a balance sheet type of risk for our banks here. And I think it, that we're now in this environment, unlike earlier this year, where objective, objective analysis and fundamental analysis is taking the front seat instead of the shoot first, aim later, because things are happening so quickly. So, so on top of the valuations, on top of preferred matching up well, with our outlook for rates, we actually feel a lot better about the underlying credit story today than we did, say, earlier this year. Yeah. Now, those are some excellent points. It, it definitely feels 
like those concerns that first appeared in March and uh, then resurfaced in May, although that was a little disconcerting, like, uh-oh, here we go again. Uh, yeah. They seem to have more, you know, sustainably dissipated. And I would also add uh, to that in terms of maybe some of the uh, the support uh, there and uh, attributable to some of the dissipation and those concerns was the recent um, uh, M&A activity among two smaller banks in California. I think that, you know, it was a, was a, a healthy, uh, 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 natural type of progression to, to deal with some of the concerns. And it didn't require any type of government intervention, uh, which I think was good news as well. Um, let me ask you, so we touched, touched on valuation, the interest rate backdrop fundamentals. And I think I think maybe a fourth element to some of the, the positive underpinnings in the preferred sector right now uh, could also be uh, the, the positive technicals, uh, right? I think uh, we may be, there has not been a ton of issuance in the space, and we could be looking at maybe some more redemption activity. So that, that could be that could be a positive too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so this is one of the things that we, we, we push as one of our primary talking points is the technical backdrop. Uh, I mean, we keep a running list right now of deals that have been called both here in the U.S. and outside the U.S. that are, you know, would have been traditional in, investments in the preferred security slash AT1 Cocoa universe. And right now we have close to $8 billion of net redemptions coming up. So that's cash that's going back into investors' hands and without meaningful new issue supply, that money is going to get put back, we think, into this kind of shrinking pool of security. So that type of technical backdrop we think is really important. Um, and it's, it's unlike other areas of fixed income where we see net supply remains, remains positive, And whenever the market kind of opens up for new issue supply, you, you see it come. Now, there's also a reason why um, we, we're not expecting to see a meaningful amount of supply. Um, first, you know, banks in general and insurance companies, the two largest issuers and preferreds, have been kind of operating at their optimal level of preferreds for a while. And so what new issue we did see was refinancing for a while. A dollar come in and was a dollar out. But if bank balance sheets start to shrink, if banks aren't making as many loans because the economy is slowing today, they don't need as much capital. And that's the primary mm. reason why they issue preferred. So Capital is measured as a percent of assets. If you're not making as many loans as you used to, um, if you're tightening up your balance sheet, then as a bank, you may be more prone to calling some of these preferreds, especially if they're going to reset to high coupon rates, and just pass on issuing more, especially if you don't need the capital. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and one thing you mentioned there in the answer is uh, the trends both here in the U.S. and outside the U.S. with, and with respect to the AT1 and cocoa market. You know, here at the uh, UBS uh, Chief Investment Office, uh, we exclusively focus on U.S. preferreds. But, you know, at Nuveen, I know you do also invest in European bank securities. The banks there issue what are called AT1s, as you referenced, additional Tier 1 uh, securities, which are in some way similar to bank preferreds. But maybe you can let's dive into that a little bit more. How does that sector compare with the U.S. preferred market? So, so the AT1 Cocoa Securities, for all intents and purposes, serves the same purpose as preferred securities do here in the U.S. for our U.S. banks. They count towards the capital requirements of, of those banks. And so really our outlook for that 
space is quite constructive. Um, now, admittedly so at this point, we're a little bit more constructive on the AT1 COCO space, um, those securities issued by European banks say, outside of Switzerland. There's some regulatory and governmental issues there um, that develop that make us a little less, I would say, comfortable about necessarily adding exposure to that particular geography. But in the rest of Europe, most of those European banks that issue AT1 COCOs, they're regulated by either the BOE, the Bank of England, or the ECB, the European Central Bank. The ECB and the, and the BOE also mentioned and, and the clarified for AT1 COCO investors under their purview that, hey, here's where you guys sit in the capital stack, you're senior to the common shareholder, and, and that gave us a real sense of comfort um, from those regulators investing in these types of securities for their banks. Now, if you take it a step further, which is, these are details not everybody knows, if, especially if you're not spending a lot of time in the European bank space or in the AT1 COCO space, but generally speaking, generally speaking, European banks have less commercial real estate exposure than U.S. banks. They also tend to have less competition for deposits. There's just fewer European banks. That naturally, that leads to less competition for deposits. And also, generally speaking, investment alternatives for savings aren't as readily available to, say, the retail saver or investor in Europe than here in the U.S. Here in the U.S., you can open up a brokerage account, you can move your savings there, and then buy a money market or an ETF. It's just not that developed in Europe. So while we have net interest margins shrinking here in the U.S., we still have them, generally speaking, increasing in Europe. And then one of the more topical risks, too, that we had here in the U.S. were that some of the banks ended up really with a little bit too much duration in their securities and or their mortgage portfolios and hadn't really actively hedged it necessarily to the degree that they should have. In Europe, under Basel III regulations, the regulators there pay particular attention and monitor the duration, the ALM risk in those banks um, and on their balance sheet. So it's a risk that's monitored more closely over there. So when you think about topical headlines we've had recently, whether it's commercial real estate, um, net interest margin compression because deposit costs are going up here in the U.S., um, and or uh, risk management, specifically duration management on the balance sheet, um, those risks seem to be less prevalent. Again, this is high level, more generically speaking, um, for these European banks than what you would find here in the U.S. So there's there are reasons why we find that market uh, quite quite compelling today, and plus, it just gives you diversification um, and mm-hmm. well, having a strategy with access to that market. Yeah, and I think you know you bring up the point about some of the more topical risks that uh, investors have been grappling with lately, and uh, you know the, that duration aspect of uh, the losses on the. Uh, you know, whether it's the, the uh, 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 securities available for sale or held to maturity on, on, on the bank balance sheets, um, those, those losses were all sort of uh, the duration driven. This wasn't, you know, that's what made, made the whole um, uh, mini crisis, for lack of a better word, so uh, unusual that we experienced earlier this year is that it wasn't 
Um, it was very different than the 2008 experience where, you know, it was sort of bad loans or, or risky loans. In this case, we're talking about losses not in risky investments. So actually, there were losses in extremely high quality investments, but it was just the duration right. uh, element, you know, which, which kind of made, made, made it kind of unique and maybe unexpected in many ways. And I also thought one of the notable things about the results of the recent uh, Federal Reserve banking stress test was that in those extreme uh, adverse uh, scenarios that, that the, the Fed uses in those stress tests, um, the interest rates would be going down, which while you know credit uh, spreads and, and risks are rising, one of the mitigating factors in those extreme uh you know, adverse scenarios, one of the main factors would be lower interest rates, which actually helped right. to re- reduce some of that, you know, that, that the market was concerned about um, earlier in the year. Um, but just switching gears now, Doug, you know, one of the exciting aspects about the preferred sector that, that I uh, think is interesting, that I get excited about personally, that's with me, but is, is the variety of coupon types and structures available uh, uh, in the preferred space. When it comes to things like managing duration you know that those that variety of coupon types is really key uh, uh and i think it's a, it's a key uh, uh tool and a helpful tool in building a preferred uh portfolio so for example there are some interesting preferreds out there called fixed rate resets uh i'm sure you know but maybe our listeners are, are not uh, familiar with uh that pay a fixed coupon during the initial non-call period typically five years and then it's not called the coupon resets off of a five-year treasury rate. And the ones that are callable, uh, the ones that I find particularly interesting at this time are those that are callable with resets uh, in the next 12 to 24 months uh, that trade at currently trade at discounts to par. Those are particularly interesting to me at this point, especially given uh, the direction of interest rates and, and rate expectations that we've been experiencing over the past several weeks. So, um, you know, there is this potential for these coupons to experience um, uh, possibly, uh, you know, significant uh, step-ups in coupon or if they're not called or if they're called, price appreciation built in since many of these, as I mentioned at the outset, are trading at a discount to par. Um, and I do highlight specific recommendations in uh, my monthly updates to what I call the preferred top picks report. So the latest monthly update to that top picks report, the preferred top picks report has some specific recommendations. But what are your thoughts about the, the sector currently with respect to you know any particular segments that look uh, interesting to you right now? Yeah, so Frank, you are preaching to the choir. <laughs> if you are, if you really for us, this is what gets us excited about preferred, is that we feel it's offering right now the opportunity of equity-like returns that you don't often get with preferred. So you have pretty meaningful discount prices on average, and so like you mentioned, most most preferreds are callable at par. If you get a par call between now and the call date, you know, you're talking about, well, depending on what you own, some cap, real capital appreciation. And yields today are quite high, so your carries, your carries fantastic. And on top of that, if you own the right structures, you can protect yourself in an instance where the security isn't called. And one of the things we do at Nuveen is really focus on structures that have these wide reset spreads. It's, it's a spread that's added to that five-year treasury benchmark uh, 
or whatever index that security would reset to. Some of ours actually reset to term SOFR. But um, you know, if, if you look at where our paper on average is going to reset, if it does extend, you know, on average we're looking at anywhere between eight and a half and nine and a half percent type coupons. I mean, that is, and, and on top of that, a lot of that is still qualified dividend income. So the taxable equivalent yield we're talking about here um, is, is just quite an opportunity uh, for a lot of our investors. So we kind of have this, what we feel is, is, a, is a, a way to, to play the space and to um, capitalize on securities if they're redeemed. And then if they're not redeemed, capitalize on, on these significantly higher coupons. Now, you know, I, I think it's very specific, though, to those security structures because it's a different risk profile when you're dealing with discount securities that have a fixed rate coupon that doesn't adjust. Um, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things that we, we highlight the most, that the research that you're doing is incredibly important to kind of highlight where the opportunities are. And, you know, an actively managed strategy, a portfolio manager can make those decisions for their investors as well because when we get asked how do we feel about the preferred market and opportunities, you know, we're really not using just a paintbrush and painting the whole category with our same opinion. We have very, very strong opinions about where there's opportunities for segments of our market, and in other areas, we're actually recommending people might want to scale back some exposure. So, um, but yeah, yeah, we couldn't agree more. Those uh, adjustable rate, those fixed to fixed or fixed rate reset structures, we think, especially the ones at a discount with uh, the higher reset spreads, are are a real opportunity in today's market. Yeah, and those discounts are, are the fact that the vast majority of the market right now trades at a discount. I think is is part of the current opportunity. It's not something that we've seen in many many years um, in terms of the degree to which the sector is trading at at uh, a discount to par. You know, there's there's always going to be certain securities, uh, maybe for credit reasons or issuer specific reasons that are trading below par, but I think this is a very uh, uh, interesting and unusual uh, time and opportunity where you have the vast majority of preferred trading with full, you know, extension risk priced in, so that if it does get called, you know, investors sometimes find it frustrating when their securities are called. But if you if you purchase it at a discount, that's price appreciation built in, um, and and it's not something that happens frequently, certainly not on this scale within the preferred space. So I think there's uh, a real interesting uh, opportunity at current entry point to some attractive uh, 12 months returns from here. Having said all that, I think it brings us towards the end of our time. It went quickly, as it always does when I get excited talking about preferreds, the time just flies. Doug, I want to thank you for uh, joining me again today. Uh, as I said, I always enjoy the conversation. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is 
published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.